like I've started really letting go of the trends and and what I feel like is the quote unquote right way and and letting go a lot of of what I feel like will be embraced and accepted. And then the minute that I choose to go with my gut, and I've said this many times like to myself, it's just like the minute that I stopped trying and the minute that I just kind of went with ma- making sure that the language and that the imagery that I am using is like really accessible and that the imagery and the language that I'm using, that it just resonates and that it's empowering and that it's not too complicated and that it's not too like, well, what is she trying to say? and like that is what is important if you want to say like disability solidarity then just say it if you want to say black disabled lives matter then just say it welcome to works in process the podcast that asks the hows and whys behind creative work take a ride with me designer and educator george garistegui as i learned from my guests there's no one way to being a creative but endless possibilities fueled by passion determination and of course process That's our guest, Jen White Johnson, a designer, photographer, art activist, and art educator. She teaches as an assistant professor of visual communications at Bowie State University, and her work focuses on the intersection of content and caregiving with the emphasis on redesigning ableist visual culture. When her son was diagnosed as autistic at age two, she began to examine the absence of black disabled children in digital and literary media. This motivated the release of an advocacy photo zine entitled Knox Rocks dedicated to her autistic son. Since its release, the zine has received national and international recognition, including features on Afropunk, Today at Apple, and is permanently archived in libraries at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And her activist work has been featured in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and she was recently selected as an honoree on the 2020 Diversability D30 Disability Impact List. It's for her advocacy and her artistic impact that I have her on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy the candid nature in which you discuss her artistic voice and how visuals help advance the conversation around Black and Brown disabled voices. So, hey, Jen, how you been? Crazy year, right? Yes, wild year. Thank you so much for holding space for me today, George. Oh, definitely. Thank you so much for being on the Works and Process podcast. I'm so psyched to talk to you today, and I. And I really want to get into, you know, your work, but also your creative process. But before that, let's have some fun. I like to start each episode with a rapid fire Q&A session that sets the stage for our conversation. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. I hope I'm ready. <laughs> it's simple, right? No tests. Coffee or tea? Mm, both. Because as, as much as I love, as much as I love a nice cup of coffee to kind of get me moving, I also love like my chamomile tea. <laughs> You know, my, my jasmine lavender is a little bit of both. Like that's what happens, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna see a tr- I, I, I I'm gonna be- see a trend with these questions. Design or photography? Both. <laughs> nah, man, you got. I gotta be real. I can't. I both. As much as I love, like just just the gems of image making and composition. There's something really beautiful about the design and typography and being able to merge them both. Like there's beauty in all things. Like I cannot choose one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Research. Or output? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as much as I love the the output, like the end all be all, I also respect like the the, the research process and being able to like investigate in, in what craft means, especially when you're getting ready to like work on something or for a presentation. Like there's something really beautiful about being able to just investigate, but then taking all of that and then showing you know like the fruits of that research 
So there, there is a hard love for, for both. Yes. I think both are very valid. And, and let's, fi- let's finalize this with words or actions. Definitely. I guess actions, actions. Yes. You know? We have a decision. Yes. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> Not those. The other ones were decisions too, man. Don't be knocking people that have like multi, multi approaches. No, that's very um, true. That's very true. And so after this, we're going to do a quick word association, right? So the first word that comes up when you hear these other words, okay? Creativity. Truth. Determination. Audacity. Business. Relationships. Failure. Honesty. Community. Radical. Education. Life. Mistakes. Common. Skills. Neither here or there. History. Respect. Opportunity. Community. (laughs) Accessibility. Important. Future. Children. And last, process. Working. Continuing to progress, continuing to, to be ambitious. So I guess I, I guess I could say like ambition. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I know the first, the, the first group of, of, of questions is a little bit, <laughs> you're, you're, you're on both sides of the same coin, but sometimes yeah. we got to ask you about that. No, it's important. I like it. Yeah. So as I read in the beginning of your episode, in your bio, you state that you're a designer, photographer, art activist, and educator. That, that's a lot of things. <laughs> and I want to get into it all. But I first want to understand, how'd you get into photography and design? So photo and design really just came from me wanting to continue learning and expanding my artistic horizons. I really started off during my childhood as a performer and I had undiagnosed ADHD. I still do. And I didn't realize at the time that I really was looking for, like I was thriving and like eccentricities you know I was always bubbly and full of energy and singing and always into like musicals and always just really just trying to find any way that I possibly could to just emote my happiness and so performing you're always wondering okay but if is that going to be the end all be all and my and my parents always encourage me well you gotta have a backup plan you know growing up in like the black and latino community is either 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 you got it or you got to have that backup plan and so in in the event that you don't make this audition or if you don't or if you're not like on broadway one day what's going to be like the backup plan for you and so my dad dabbled in painting and my mom she's a crafter and so watching them always making and and always using their hands to build or or to teach others or or to give back you know when i enrolled in my first photo class and my first design class i was like wow like this is actually something that i'm enjoying and that i want to continue learning and it really just started off with like a basic black and white film photography class that i took at a community college to me which was like my favorite creative space honestly so big ups to like community colleges and those professors that are there 
because that was where I'm, you know, where I took my first roll of 35 millimeter film and was in the dark room and fell in love with like the smells of the fixer and, and all of that. And then that was like the first space where I was able to get into digital photography. And then where I took my first design classes and I was like, man, like this is really beautiful being able to kind of mix both and being able to like understand how both can equally communicate and celebrate, you know, so many things. So, so yeah, so that was how I, how I got into it. Okay. Seeing a trend here, the both. What, yes, what, come on, no. no, no, that's, that's really important. It's really important to think about that, that there are multiple avenues and multiple ways to, to one, be into something, but also navigate creativity from multiple point of views. In that learning process, who do you think was your biggest supporter? I would say my family and, and my friends. I had a, a, a really good you know, girl group that they were just kind of like my, my go-to and they were all like bride bridesmaids, like at my wedding. And, and, you know, and so it was just really beautiful to, to kind of have like that, that, that net, like that community. And that's really what I encourage, like for folks, it's like, find your, find your community, find the folks that will lift you up on your darkest days. And that will, and also that are creative and that are artists and, you know, like in their own ways, um, because then, you know, you'll have like these really beautiful conversations and you'll realize like, I'm in a safe space, you know, like everyone is, is rooting for me. I'm rooting for them. So I think that was like the biggest support system was just having that, that, that rooted group of other creative artists that, we felt like we could just call each other, you know, family. That's really important. I think just in, in your formative years, having that in general, just a big support group, regardless if it's, you know, a creative support group or just that group that you can call on, I think really, really helps. And I, and, and I can attribute that same thing to me, but me being Latino, you know, you growing up from, from, you know, like you said, mixed race family, it seems like that's something that support and, and larger groups of people kind of work hand in hand. Yeah, because I, you know, right. Like growing up, you know, like in a multiracial environment, everyone kind of has their standards, but then they also, but, but if you're serious enough and if they realize that they can't change you and you are who you are, then they're going to support it. They were like, Oh, so you really are going to do this. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Well, I realize that I can't stop you. So I got to support you, you know, mm-hmm. like that's, that's, or, or, or I have to continue believing in you. Because even, you know, like notions of like graduate school, like both my parents didn't graduate from college. I'm first gen. And so the traditional standard of graduate from high school. Yeah. okay, go to college. Sure. Graduate, get married, have kids like that's like a very standard, you know, traditional like element of, of kind of like just being an adult. But my way was a little different. Like I kind of transitioned between schools. I took a semester off. I changed my major. I was really trying to kind of get a sense of, okay, so who is Jen? Like, what is she really supposed to be doing? And then when I was finally done with like undergrad, the expectation was you go get a job, you you get in a relationship, you have children. And, but it was like, nah, man, I want to like go to grad school. I want to keep learning. I want to like keep pushing myself. I, and then it was just like, yeah, but okay, well, do you have to? Like, this is just like, aren't you tired of school? Kind of kind of a thing. Like, that was kind of how I felt at times. But like during my first grad show at Micah, like my mom was like in tears because she was like, man, like this is, this is for real. Like you're really doing this. Mm-hmm. And then when I started teaching right after grad school, my dad sat in on like one of my first classes. He was like, oh, like this is, I could tell like they really felt a sense of pride being able to kind of see what happens when you let, or a kid that you raised and you raised well, 
when you let them really go all the way, it feels good. Like it feels good to have like your kid kind of stand in, in their own, their own sense of self and their own identity. So, yeah. So, so how did that, I mean, you know, you just talked about how your parents kind of felt a sense of pride, but I, I, I want to flip that back on you, right? Having, having your mom see your show and having your dad be in class. When did you see that finally click from their perspective? It wasn't really until after all of it, honestly, it wasn't until like I became a mother and like mothering is really what helped to define me. Like some people are like, oh, well, I, you know, when I got married, I felt my sense of purpose. But there are still aspects of when I got married, I felt like I was still under a lot of pressure because you're like, man, I'm a wife now and I have to like, you know, do everything. I got to be like the, the, the most beautiful and to be the most desirable 24 seven. You know, like there are a lot of these like misconceptions, even after you married your best friend. And, and a lot of that is like, look, like I married you for you, like but but there's still there's still the sense of man I gotta like stay on top of it but then when I became a mom it, I was like man like even if I wake up horrid this is me like this is who I really am and so mothering ended up really it just it helped to focus me and it really helped me to like understand on the more important things in life and to understand that any art and any design that I'm going to continue to create from this point on is going to be the most genuine and the most true and the most honest because like I have no other choice but to come to the table like as my true self. Mm -hmm. So thinking about your true self, when did you, when did you personally consider yourself a creative? A creative. And, and I, and I guess that just depends on how, how like creativity is defined. Creativity, like in terms of like artistry, or creativity in, in terms of, okay, well, this is what I'm going to, like, I have this much, so I'm going to use this much to make this. That, that's what creativity means to me. It, it's, it's not always like, okay, well, what, what can you make when, when, when you're at your best? It's like, what can you make when you don't have a lot? Or when the odds are against you? Or, where, or, or when people feel like, well, she's at this point. Like, how is she even going to be able to make this or to, like, to make these moves or, 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 or to advocate change when she doesn't really have much. So I think one of my biggest moments of feeling like I was creative and like, I felt like I could really stand in my own was like just through this past summer with COVID um, and being already like excited about relationships that I had been forming with people and speaking. And, and, and I was like this close to like getting ready to like release like my second book and, but then with COVID, I'm like, man, like, you know, we, a lot of us felt like, wow, this is like really cutting off so much for us. Felt like, you know, isolated and we felt like, well, I don't have this and I don't have these tools and I don't, so how am I, how, how am I going to continue to to foster these relationships and make new connections if I'm not with my students or if I'm not at my studio? So I felt like, well, this is where I truly feel like a creative because I didn't have access to all of those things that I felt like defined who I wasn't as an artist and, and as a designer, like I just had like my little corner studio at home, <laughs> like literally like it's so tiny and I have like all these distractions. This is like probably the first time in a while where I, where I have felt the most creative and where I felt like it all just kind of came together. Awesome. I think that's really honest and open of you to, to basically state that just recently, you personally felt 
that sense of creativity? Because I think this question for me is not necessarily how anybody else defines it, but you. And I don't want anybody to, to look at it and say, well, what is the typical versions of what we think of as creativity and who determines that? Is it a, is it a degree, a, a this? A, I think we all need to come into it in our own. And I, and I really think that your definition of how everything kind of come together, how everything came together and really kind of made you see something in a different light was really um, eye-opening. So I think as, you know, you, you talked about defining really. And I think before we start our conversation, from my research, what, a lot of the stuff that you talk about as an art activist and an educator has to do a lot with the area of disability. And so really to educate me and anybody else listening, do you think we can define some of these terms that can kind of help people frame the, maybe the conversation we're going to be having so that we can all be on the same page at least? And I just want you to just, I'm going to run through some, some terms that we may come across during our conversation and really just want your definition of this. So is that cool? Yes. Yes. Awesome. So let's start off with the word disability. So, so yeah, I mean, with the word disability, I mean, it just, it really means that, you know, someone who has a physical impairment or someone who is, whether they're like a, a wheelchair user or whether they are, they have like an invisible disability, you know, whether it's something like autism or, or ADHD, you know, or someone who you know, who has like an anxiety disorder or someone who like, there are so many different aspects of disability. And so it's not something that is, oh, like a disease that, that needs to be fixed. And, 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 you know, disability isn't necessarily, it's not a broken term either. It's, it, it can be a term that is like a legit, like identity. Thank you. Um, ableist or ableism. So, So, yeah, so I mean, it could it could go both ways. Like, so whether you're an ableist or whether you're, or whether something is under the 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 oppressive nature of of ableism. So ableism, and and certain aspects are are just the way that disabled folks are, are are treated, especially folks who have invisible disability. So someone who has an anxiety disorder or someone who has who is autistic, you know, basically framing them as someone who is incapable of being able to accomplish a lot. So, oh, well, you know, you, you can't do this and, or you're wild or you're acting out, basically putting someone like in a box and not really being open to like their, or celebrating their full true selves, you know? So calling people crazy, calling people idiots, calling people stupid, those are aspects of, of, of ableism or just, or just, being able to to kind of oppress someone and putting them in a box because they are like in a wheelchair it's like okay well they're incapable you know like they're disposable those are aspects of of, of ableism that like really bother bother me true true let's go and move on to this one which is probably closer related but anti-racist yeah so so being someone who is anti-racist means that you're going to celebrate culture you're going to celebrate identity you are going to, you're going to center you know folks who are who are different folks who who have disabilities folks who who have very unique ways of of communicating you know non-speaking people speaking you know you know disabled folks who who do speak so just being able to kind of center them and making sure that they're celebrated for being their true authentic selves 
and I and I definitely want to like elaborate on like impairment because like I don't even necessarily like that word either. Like I I used that earlier, but impairment is also another word for me that is ableist because it's like okay, well, just because someone doesn't necessarily because someone who is non-speaking, you know, oh well, they're impaired because or or because you're deaf, you're hard of hearing, you have an impairment, which means that we're not going to be able to be friends or we're, we're not going to be able to, to communicate or you can't be in the White House one day because you, you're deaf or because you have a disability. You know, that that's automatically how a lot of disabled folks feel. It's like, okay, well, I'm disposable because I don't do things like you do or because I'm not quote unquote normal. You know, it's like, what is normal? So making sure that people feel, again, centered and, and celebrated because of their disability. Mm-hmm. And these two are, are 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 newer to me, and I and I think um, be nice to understand these a little bit. But neurodiverse and neurotypical. Yeah. So, and these were th- those were terms that I learned when when I Knox, my son, was diagnosed as autistic, and then even with you know folks that are a part of the same like neurodivergent family, so folks who have ADHD, so folks, so it's just neurodiversity, you know. It's just folks, it, it's just another way to define specific disabilities that are, are cognitive, you know, that, that have all things to do with, with, with the way that your brain operates, you know, with the way that you behave, with the way that, that, that you operate. And then neurotypical is like someone who, who does not have a cognitive or like a developmental disability, you know, someone who is, you know, non-disabled. So those are just specific terms to kind of help define different elements of, of disability or non-disability. And um, one of the last ones, spectrum. Yeah. So spectrum is kind of like, eh, you know, some some people refer, and this is where like I'm going to lean more towards like autism experts. I know, I know some people just prefer to be called, I'm an autistic person. Spectrum is just another way to actually like articulate autism as like a very like faceted cognitive difference or cognitive disability, you know, because there are some autistic folks who are non-speaking. There are some autistic folks who, who stim, who stim a lot, who like use their bodies in like really unique ways. There are some autistic people who like prefer loud noises, some who don't like my son Knox, like he's kind of like a mix of both. Like he's, he's a very loud person himself and he loves loud music, but then sometimes like noises that are like abrupt, like when they shock him, like the blender, like the smoothie maker. He's just like, nah, man. Like, or even when something scares him, like when it's like a, a, a really spooky part in the movie, he's like, oh, you know? And so I, I have learned in meeting different autistic people and different autistic friends that I have that everyone has a very different way of, of being able to just be, like be autistic. And so like, and I love that. I love that there is a full wide range of of what of what autism is Mm -hmm. um and so like I said I'm not really going to get into the mechanisms of like well who defined the word spectrum because that's not my wheelhouse and that can go like in the resources but yeah it's just like another way to kind of define but but honestly like the folks who are within the autistic community just prefer to be identity first like straight up like I'm an autistic person okay good to know good to know thank you thank you and I appreciate that just taking the time to to help set the language a little bit, just because we may be using these during the conversation or just, you know, making sure that we all feel a little bit more comfortable in, in using terms that maybe we're just not used to sometimes. 
So thank you. I really appreciate that. And so, you know, we run into the same design circles and we follow each other on social media, you know, and it's been a while since I began following you. So I really don't remember like how we actually first connected. Somehow we're just in the same, you know, design circles. But I do, what I do remember though, is, is seeing photos of your son Knox. And I remember seeing you, your posts for advocating for autism. And like you just mentioned, you know, and that I read that Knox at three years old, I think was diagnosed with being autistic and it seems to propel you forward. And as you put it, redesigning ableist visual culture. And I read that and I was like, okay, that's a powerful statement. So with that, what does that term mean to you? And, and maybe a little bit more importantly, how do we start achieving something like that? Yeah, no, and thank you. And it really took me a, a while, you know, oftentimes when, especially, you know, Black families and Black and, and, and Latino families, like oftentimes, like I've met so many families who are like, well, that's a label and you shouldn't even call your, your kid autistic and you shouldn't even call him disabled because that's like offensive and you're, you're oppressing him. And it's, it's, and it's really, and so that whole redefining and, 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 and kind of like reclaiming like specific ways that disabled folks are and the way that they celebrate themselves, making sure that that comes to the forefront and then also making that in itself as a norm. And I felt like I'm not speaking on behalf of like the entire autism and the disability community. I can only speak from my perspective and, and how I want people like me to celebrate disabled folks and who are willing to come to the table and who are encouraged to come to the table like as their true, full, authentic selves, you know? And that's what, what I really love about the disability community is that, you know, whether they choose to disclose their disability or whether they, they, they choose to, to kind of navigate through it in, in their own way, but we should still honor it and we should still let folks know that, that they're celebrated. So I feel like that's like really what my role is as an artist and as, and as a designer and as a mother and as like an organizer and like a community builder is to make sure that people within the disability community feel like, okay, well, man, like I have like my pack and, and my pack is a safe space for me to feel like I can just be me. Not so much like, well, society, like I need to be able to learn how to conform and I need to be able to learn. And if I want to be included in this space, I need to be able to learn the lingo and I need to be able to mask and I need to be able to talk the talk. No, it's like those spaces should shift. Like those spaces should change so that they can become more accommodating to you, you know, to who you are and to celebrate and to center like you just as like your, your true self. I mean, period. Like that's just, you know, it's very simple in terms of what some of these spaces really want to do. But those types of conversations need to be able to happen in, in, in very small ways, like in something as simple as like a photo zine, you know, something as simple in a photograph, you know, like that's really like what my role is. It's, it's, it's like I'm shifting the way that people are looking at these images. There, there's an organization that I really love called Affect the Verb slash Disabled in Here. And, and what, what they do is they commission disabled photographers and illustrators, designers to, to basically take charge and to create stock images that, that disabled folks can use or that, you know, non, you know, disabled folks 
can use when it comes to representing the disability community. Like oftentimes we just see the typical standard white person like in a wheelchair and and that's like our only viewpoint of disability. Or we may see, you know, like the white autistic kid, you know, like kind of like in a room, like in a corner, like all oppressed and, and sad, you know. But if that's not my definition of disability, like my definition of disability is someone who uses a cane, someone who 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 have disable invisibility and they're like moving and dancing. And these aren't, you know, things that I'm making. Like these are actual disabled friends that I have that are like performers and actors, musicians, you know, like Leroy Moore, like from Crip Hop Nation and, and Mariah Person, you know, who is an amazing dancer and, and she's also autistic. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's really glorious to continue to kind of connect with those folks. And that's, that's originally what, what my definition is of redefining is culture, able cultures to be able to center these folks that don't get seen and that don't always have the opportunity. Like they're being overshadowed. And and I'm gonna be honest, like so for instance, like with with Sia, um, you know, she recently released this movie called Music and it's a musical and it is it's centering um an autistic character as you know she navigates her way through life and how her world is like this this musical and she's really celebrating and visualizing her her world like in this really beautiful way and it is you know like how autistic people live like my son lives in in an everyday musical but the disability community specifically felt like well why did you have to hire a non-disabled actor or a neurotypical actor to mimic an an actual autistic person when you could have just hired an, an actual autistic performer or an actual actor so a lot of what, and this is what, what, what Sia has written and some of the articles like I've been able to kind of like dive into, but I just took from a combination of her, her tweets, you know, she's like, well, you know, like, I, you know, I had, you know, people on the spectrum actually like on set and advising me. And then I actually wanted, you know, the, like the film is, is based on an autistic friend that I had, but it would have been too much for, for, for him to actually be like in the role and it would have been too hard. And it's like, yeah, but well then if you feel like certain elements of performance are going to be too much, then, then you need to change the way that your movie is going to be made, or you need to mm-hmm. maybe add, or, or maybe you need to add more time to the timeline to accommodate for this narrative that is supposed to be quote unquote about autistic people and celebrating and centering them. And so a lot of people have been questioning, you know, like her motives and her intentions about like, how much is this movie actually going to amplify the disability community? When often in media, and again, we are not making this up, like we've seen movies like Rain Man and even like, you know, I Am Sam with Sean Penn. And and it's like, think about all of those spaces where disabled actors could have actually been hired and been paid for just for, for being an actual performance artist, you know, for being an actor. And so I feel like whenever artists have the opportunity to be able to amplify the disability community, like it should come from someone from, you know, who has like a lived experience. And so it was really important for me when it came to Knox Rocks to be able to say, okay, well, this is us as, as like a black neurodivergent family. And, and when I wrote the zine, I wasn't even necessarily like claiming ADHD and I wasn't even referring to myself as, as neurodiverse, but the more that I've learned about Knox and his disability, I'm like, man, like there are certain traits that I, that I, that we share and that I see and instead of me necessarily being like, well, I'm going to have to change him and I'm going to have to change myself. 
And, and trust me, there have been times where I have felt pressured. And then COVID alone, woo, like COVID, because we were together 24-7, I mean, and being and bonding and just continuing to just love upon each other and just embracing like everything that about us that is unique. Like that was just a really beautiful moment. You know, one of the things as maybe a response to what you were talking about where like an ableist perspective, you know, in the SIA um, example is that we need to fit some people in the way that we understand the world as, as maybe, you know, people who are, who are, you know, neurotypical. And how do we start to think about, well, how do we empower, how do we include, how do we make sure that we're, we're amplifying, you know, something else that maybe isn't what we're used to, but is going to affect and impact other people? Because if they see themselves as part of this community, they understand that they belong because other people are seeing them for who they are, right? And I think from, from just your conversation is understanding that, that the SIA mishap looks like it was a missed opportunity for to be able to, to elevate people, to be part of this, you know, to, to think about spectrum people in, in the acting community or how they can be part of just on set. And also, I think that one of the biggest things is then having to reshift the expectations or the timeline, right? If you know that, you know, like you mentioned, her friend couldn't do that thing, then we need to adjust for that instead of just being like, well, I can't do it and then move on. So that, that to me starts to go into the, the idea of how you perceive people understanding maybe disability or actually not understanding disability. And for you, one of the big things that I want us to talk about is, is this zine. I think it was a 50-page zine. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's like 40 to 50 pages. I lose track because you got like the double page spreads and mm-hmm. and and this is you know doing my research this is a, a a photo you know representation typographic book that you and your husband Kevin put together can you really break down the creative decisions about the use of photography the typography things like that and like the meanings behind it I had like this this project it's like it's my baby and I knew again, when, when it came to, to me continuing to just acclimate myself with, with the autism community, I was like, man, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of oppressive language, a lot of ableist language being used toward, towards kids and being used towards like autistic adults. And a lot of my heartache specifically came from parents, you know, who are supposed to be the biggest advocates and who are supposed to be like the biggest, you know, fans of their kids are oftentimes the most oppressive when it comes to disability and when it comes to creating safe spaces for them. There are a lot of parents that amplify their disabled kids, but then there are a lot of parents who just don't and who use the public or, or use like their public platforms to to basically like spread lies and to spread more oppression and and to just to to just spread you know very negative portrayals of of their kids you know as a way of oh maybe like pity and and or just or or just maybe you know using their their platform to say well this is why you need to love me and follow me because everything is so hard but it's like yeah but what is that really doing to the disability community as a whole what is that really doing to your kid i'm not i'm not pitying you i'm pitying the way that you're complaining about your child the way that that you're 
you know, adding so much heaviness and the way that you're portraying them as like this burden, like this, this person that needs to be stopped and this person that needs to be fixed because they're broken and they're, they're living in this prison of, of, of disability or they're living in, in this, this prison of, of autism. And so the book really came from me wanting to really shift the narrative, me really wanting to kind of change, change the way, especially Black and Latino kids are viewed within the disability community, especially when it comes to an invisible disability, something that people feel like they fear. It. They are scared of, of things that they don't understand and things that they can't always articulate. So, you know, they're going to view it as like, okay, well, this is the enemy. We have to pray this away. You have a demon child. You need to fix your kid. Like we all know that that is how a lot of <laughs> A lot of kids are viewed, a lot of kids who are ADHD or who have, you know, who, who are autistic, they're often viewed as like these kids that, man, I've met folks that are just like, no, like, I don't believe in autism. You just need to like pray that away or or your your kid needs healing. And so these were, these were a lot of the things that like, that were, were, were coming at me, you know, with things. And I was really trying to, to research and I was really trying to be mindful and, and, and to like accept what my role was like as a mom to a disabled kid and I wasn't realizing like because at that time I was really masking like my own personal disabilities like I have thyroid disorder and then I also have undiagnosed ADHD and anxiety but I was really writing that off as oh something's just wrong with me and I'm not normal I'm lazy and you know like I'm not capable and oh my god like I'm just adulting is so hard and these are you know and I was really trying to weigh myself down instead of like getting help and getting support because we all know that this isn't really about like fixing me. It's just making sure that I have the support that I need to be able to navigate. So let's think about what are the actual decisions going into, let's say, why photography, why type choices, things like that. And what was the purpose of the book? So, so I definitely wanted to make sure that the book wasn't like this clinical reference guide. Like never once in the book that I do I like define what autism is and I never define in the book, well, these are like the do's and don'ts and this is, you know, because I felt like that's not really like my my role, Um, like I'm not a clinician. And I feel like those kinds of things can like be explored in like other spaces and I have like explored those other things in other places when it comes to, you know, fair treatment and, and equitable tr- treatment when it comes to folks who are disabled, especially like kids and black kids. So the book is really just a love letter. Like that's how I always describe it. Like it's just like a love letter to the black and Latino autistic community. And then also like my love letter to my child who you know, when he's 21 years old one day, what, because he's not going to never not be autistic. And so I want for him to, to live consistently in a place where he feels like he's being celebrated and uplifted. And a lot of that's, a lot of that starts with, okay, well, how did my parents even view me when I was a young child? And when I was learning how to actually navigate through life. And when I was actually like, learning how to be a person and learning how to exist. And so I wanted for him to be able to go back to looking at these images where he's just spreading joy and uplifting joy. And so a lot of what is rooted in the zine in itself is like autistic joy. And there are so many things that like that that like sprung out from that book, like fun stickers and things like that, that really helps. To, and I've written essays on like autistic joy and and being able to 
not fear our disabled kids because there's really no room for that. There's, there's room for support and there's room for celebration and for joy. You mm-hmm. know, not that all moments are going to be easy peasy and there's going to be moments where you're really going to have to think about a lot. So the photos themselves are like joyful and just really uplift and, and especially like a black and Latino kid, like just being able to see like really true, beautiful images of just him existing mm-hmm. while he's alive. Because we've read countless articles about autistic kids who have been murdered, who are uplifted and celebrated, and they don't even, they're not even here anymore. And then when it comes to the languages in the book, I knew that it was important that the essays, and there's poems, and there's also conversations that, that, that Knox had with us that are in, that are you know, dispersed throughout different pieces of the book. And then there are phrases that are overlaid on top of different textures, you know, like that say, you know, autistic, brave, beautiful, singer, hugger, happy, you know, words that, because the book is, is not just for families, like it's for kids. It's like if, if an autistic kid wanted to pick up this book or like a family member of like an autistic kid, like I wanted for them to be able to see themselves reflected in the book. But then I also wanted to make sure that the words themselves and the language that was used in the book are words of amplification, you know, not words that are just like, don't worry, like, you'll be better one day or, you know, your autism doesn't define you because in essence it is, it's who you are, like it's your identity and you should never try to mask and you should never, you know, try to, to shy away from, from something that makes you who you are, you know, and that defines you. Mm -hmm, Totally. So I think the representation of what you're talking about and the visuals and, and, you know, it's unfortunate that you even have to, as a mother, even think about, you know, representing your, your child and even stating this something of, you know, that he has to still be alive. And that's a whole nother conversation that, that I know is rooted in, in maybe one of the reasons why you created this book and, and for him to reflect back on, on what he looked like in that pure joy self. It just pains me sometimes to hear when, you know, people have to do that, unfortunately, but one of the things that, that, that I was listening to when I was doing research, and I think you were on the Uninvisible podcast um, talking about this more so, was that obviously in trying to craft this book, you didn't really see a lot of conversation around black and brown voices and experiences in disability or in the autism space. So you had to do a lot of research, obviously, in this. How did you go down that rabbit hole? into something that maybe you feel didn't exist because now it looks like at least your creation of this zine is help filling that void. But how did you, how did you first even think about, you know, as a design researcher, how do we have to do that, that kind of work to, to start to say, how am I starting this conversation that maybe has never been talked about or in the visual world like you were creating? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And so, as I said earlier, like I was really hounded with like this oppressive, you know, even things that were in in the media, you know, that were, you know, oh, like these kind of mechanical, like mimicry, like autism characters that weren't really celebrating or amplifying autistic people. And usually they were only portrayed as white. And so I was, I got tired of reading clinician definitions and, you know, even spaces, you know, like autism speaks that still advocate for like a cure. And there's not a lot of autism based representation of people that are even on their board. And this, these are things that are factual and that the autism community has a lot of issues with. 
because, you know, there are a lot of people that still view autism as like a disease. And that's something that, you know, oh, we need to dedicate research into, you know, sorting out this this cognitive disorder and fixing people. And, and you know, I was like, well, right. Like where because these voices already existed, like black and brown spaces in terms of like disability amplification, like they already existed. But like you said, they're not like I'm expected to view it as an illness. So those are the first resources that I'm going to seek out. Right. It's like, okay, well, because my, because my son isn't normal and he needs to be fixed. Those are the only things that I feel like can fill like this particular space. Right. Like I feel like I'm being misguided into thinking that that's kind of like where it ends, where, where, where it starts and where it ends. And so Twitter, I mean, disability Twitter, like, like that was just like a really beautiful space where I felt like a lot of disabled folks were able to just be like unfiltered, unbought, unbossed. They were able to just come true. And I was really listening to, I stopped reading parent, you know, neurotypical parents, disabled parents or autistic parents. Like I was comfortable like reading those particular tweets, especially when they were talking a little bit about like, you know, this is what, what they do with their kids. And then I started reading tweets from autistic adults. And I was like, man, like this is the space. And I started, you know, reading spaces like um, the Autistic People of Color Fund, autismandrace.com, the platform that where they raise funds for like community reparations for autistic people of color. I was like, man, this is a really dope, you know, these people are like trying to survive. They're just trying to like exist as like their true selves. And they're about empowerment, like empowering like the autistic community. And for me, once I started reading a lot of like radical musings and radical like reflections of of folks that were like rooted in disability justice, I was like, man, this is truly um, the space that I need to be following and just actual autistic voices and perspectives. Like those were the spaces that to me really helped to define the movement and to realize that I cannot free, like fear is the enemy, you know, like I can't, rely so much on just the things that I don't understand. It's like, well, how can I support the community? Like, what what can I be doing as an artist and as a designer and as a parent? And then, you know, I, I started feeling safer too in terms of like self-disclosure and being able to just, you know, be very forward and 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 forthright with like my own disability and on and realizing that I could be empowered by like com- being completely honest and and true. Um, And I started doing that, like, among my students, especially now with COVID, like, I had to tell students, I'm like, look, you know, like, I have my own disabilities, I have my own differences. And this is like a place where we can be safe and where we can, where you can feel comfortable disclosing it, or just being open and being honest and and, and true, like, this is a safe space. And I'm going to be here to kind of make sure that you have the accommodations that that you deserve, and, and that you you should get, you shouldn't have to fight for accommodations. Great. I mean, I think one totally floored by the fact that disability Twitter was uh, a, a lot of places where you where you found that because you know I go down a rabbit hole on Twitter, but it t- it, it tends to be you know a more negative <laughs> rabbit hole, and I'm and I'm glad that that we can start to see the positivity in in that. So there's a lot of ways that you talk about um, advocating for people with disability and things like that. And one of the things that I, I tend to hear you speak a lot about and what you use in, in your writing and what you produce is the word joy. How has the word joy been like a mantra 
for you? Yeah, because to me, being joyful is completely like existing in like this unbridled, like unlimited space where you feel like you can just be just your your true self. And I, and I, I, I say that phrase a lot, like true and authentic self, like authenticity, like feeling feeling secure and feeling like you don't have to ask permission. You don't have to, you know, seek anyone out to say, well, can I just be happy? Like, can I just be, be encouraged to just exist as, as me? Like, do I have, do I have to shift? Do I have to change? You know, so much that some people become like super experts on really masking their, their disabilities. I mean, Chadwick Boseman, for example, and I know that close people within his circle knew but he also felt like, okay, well, I don't want it to necessarily get out because first of all, like it, it was his business, but then, but then there's also going to be like a community of people that are just going to be like, well, you're disabled. So you, you shouldn't have any place on a movie set anyway, because they were already making, they were already degrading him because he was, you know, losing weight and because he was, you know, getting the, the care that, that he needed, but his body was going to do what it was going to do. And there were already so many people that were ableist, you know, to, oh, get him a sandwich, you know, like, why is he so thin, you know? And so people weren't even realizing what they were doing and the way that they were perpetuating like this oppressiveness. So someone who wasn't even really disclosing their disability and their, their, their medical situation, you know, because of however he felt like he was going to be viewed. It really just comes down to as long as we're there to support the disability community and, and again, to like kind of center their goals and, and center like what they want and making sure that if you're going to talk about them, that they're actually a part of the conversation versus like talking around them or talking over them. And so that in, in itself has really helped me center like the way that, that I, that I talk about like disability and especially about joy, you know, and, and, and realizing that, you can be happy in those times um, that are difficult and, and really just kind of like celebrating like your existence. And it's not always going to be easy, but I feel like, especially this, this past summer, you know, and, and you folks like Walter Wallace Jr. And, you know, whatever he was going through, you know, and the fact that, you know, his family, and this is like, again, I'm not making it up. Like, this was filmed, you know what I mean? Like he was literally, there were no de-escalation tactics that were being used at all. And his family had to like advocate and to come out and put themselves in the line of fire, you know, and he still ended up being snuffed out. And it goes on and on, you know, like so many, so many disabled folks, you know, where they're not just walking in the street, like they're actually at home and they're getting killed, like in, in what's, what is supposed to be a safe space, like in their own neighborhoods. So I often feel like we don't really start having these conversations while these people are alive and, and, and just existing that we don't often honor them until like, oh, well, they're no longer here. Let, let's celebrate them. And, and I'm just keeping it real in terms of like, the, you know, the black and brown community. Like that's usually when we have these conversations and we don't really uplift them when, when they're still alive. And that's why, like, I'm just so, so grateful for communities like like Sins Invalid and like Crip Hop Nation and Be Heard DC, you know, who, 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 who amplify, you know, like black and brown deaf folks. Those are the communities that I really rely on. The, the creative communities, like the disabled artists and visionaries that are out here trying to like shift and change, like the focus of the conversation to be like, look, like this is me and this is how I celebrate everything about me. 
you know, everything about my body, everything about the way that I think, the way that, 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 that I communicate, the way that I operate, that is not like you, you mm-hmm. know? So I feel like those are like the biggest avenues and the biggest amplifications of like what disability joy can mean. And then autistic joy in particular is because there are so many stigmas related to autistic people, like the lack of empathy and just because I'm not looking at you means that I'm disrespecting you. But it's like, well, some folks can't focus eye to eye at all times. But trust me, like even Knox doesn't look at me all the time, but he's he's focusing like it. He's focusing in his own way in terms of like what I'm saying, or even if I just choose to just design differently or just move differently, like that's not necessarily me being disrespectful. Or even if I'm not smiling, if I'm just looking at you or if I'm just like ruminating or listening to like what you're saying, like that's just me like expressing like my happiness. And those are things that I'm still learning. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think you mentioned a lot of good things, especially, you know, talking about the summer of 2020, which is, is been one of the most turbulent ones that I can I think about a long time. And, and, you know, as we're dealing with so many things, creatives have been, been, been challenging the status quo and, and inventing new ways to talk about systematic inequalities. And obviously from your conversation on Bronx net, you didn't start the disabled black disabled lives matter movement, but you created the Black Power Fist Infinity logo on it and, and kind of, you know, use type and bold iconography to, to create a visual message that has impact. Um, what were you uplifted most by the response to that visual? So really the, the, the symbol came from a place of me just wanting to just artistically respond to everything that was happening. And it was just like my own aspect of like like social media activism and virtual activism you know a lot of folks were were out there marching and i knew that i couldn't necessarily always be at every single protest or every single rally not not that i even needed to be you know because of covid and because making sure that people were were safe um and that and that i was safe and that my family was safe and so i made the symbol in itself free and like a, a downloadable poster so that folks could feel like, man, like this is like a piece of artwork that can unify us. And that could be seen as like this really bold message, you know, for folks who were already in the disability community and then folks who were brand new to the disability community. Because we all know white people came out in droves. Like, let's just be real. They came out from under the woodworks. I mean, people who like hadn't spoken to me in like months we're like, are you okay? Like, is everything, is everything fine? Oh, like this, this, this graphic, can I share it? Oh, like, can, can we include it in this? And oh, like, we want you to come. And I'm like, okay, well, where have you been? Like, where have you been this entire time? I was always here. I was always, you know, uplifting black and brown disabled folks, like for, for, for a while now, but it took for, it, it almost took like COVID unfortunately to like remind a lot of people like, who was really at risk mm-hmm. and who has really and who has been suffering for decades and because this this conversation has been like we all know like i mean people were like legit questioning well does systemic racism even exist and we weren't even talking about like the the disparities between no literally like someone said to me and someone i've known for a long time they were like oh that is just liberal language that you learned at your liberal college that systemic racism d- 
doesn't doesn't really exist and that it's not real and that it's not like an actual true representation of what is happening right now. Like I'm not making this up. Like I tweeted about this and everything. So we have people who are are already like, and this is like well after the symbol came out and after like I, I continued to to talk a little bit about like, you know, black disabled lives and, and how much we need to uplift them and we need to amplify them while they're still alive. And and so there were a lot of spaces that were like, well, well, we need resources and all these magazines that were coming in droves wanting to write their own, who had no clue and who had who weren't even talking about disability before. And all of a sudden they wanted to talk about it now. Like, if anything, those are things that I thought was really interesting that happened as a result of the symbol being being out there and being used in so many ways. I was like, man, I'm like, well, if this is if this is what it's gonna take to help perpetuate a conversation of justice and to kind of help uplift the movement. And, and like I said, like I didn't create the movement. I don't, that's not, it's not anything that existed when this symbol came, this symbol was just me. Like, again, it was just like a tribute, like a love letter because I do everything in love. And so this was just my way of being able to continue the conversation that had already been around for so long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, it, it seems like, you know, unfortunately, like you said, you know, it takes a global pandemic for people to start to see, you know, the inequalities that are happening at home. <laughs> and, and, and it's, and it's sad. And it's, and it's sad that people um, use rhetoric to kind of, you know, help justify how, how they maybe be blissfully unaware of what's really going on. And, and maybe to have this, this visual help spark a conversation is, is part of the things that we need. Right. And, and that's how creativity and art can be so impactful, even to people that we're not necessarily designing for. And so, you know, you mentioned earlier you know, obviously as an educator, how do you acknowledge, especially now in, in hybrid or virtual environments, if your students are, you know, neurodiverse or differently abled, you know, and how do me as an educator start to understand how can I even think about, you know, acknowledging and understanding how that is in this new, you know, virtual way we learn now? Yeah. And remember, you don't have to say differently able, just say disabled, just, just say disabled folks, because, you know, able-bodied people, we can let them shine all they want. But if we take the dis out of, out of, out of disability, like then, then we're basically, you know, we're not celebrating disabled people. And this is just coming from the disability activism community, like language that, that I have learned, you know, throughout the, the past couple of years. Um, and there's like a lot of really good resources, resources that, that I can drop about that. But thank you so much for that question, because it's so important. There, there's a website called Mapping Access. They actually released like a really beautiful teaching in the day in, in the days and times of, of, of COVID and and rethinking what what accessibility can mean for students. And it's things that students, you know, disabled students have been advocating for all the time. Like, well, can I have more time on taking this exam? Can you repeat the information a little bit more clearly for me? Can we have a one-on-one? Can I meet with you during your office hours? Can we possibly like reframe the project a little bit so that I can understand some of the language that, that you're trying to use? These accessible requests aren't necessarily anything that are new um, that disabled students and even disabled faculty have been requesting. I was a part of like this this really cool panel over the summer, like the AIGA Educator Summit, and we we, we talked a lot about about this topic. And one of my biggest things was just continue to remain flexible um, because it is the law. There is an actual American with Disabilities Act 
that that you know justifies a lot of the accommodations that these students need and a lot of the accommodations that you know employees need in in whatever space that that they're working in so flexibility is an amazing thing like honesty and 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 openness is is a thing that to me aren't shouldn't be just for the privilege but that they should be for everybody especially now like this is just a very challenging time just because you know a lot of people were thrown off they're like ooh like remote learning but we all know zoom and skype have always been existing <laughs> we've been having meetings like this yes it wasn't to like this full capacity but just making sure that as a professor that you're just ready to kind of support the students as as best as as they need that kind of support and then if you're unable to provide that support to them pointing them at least like in a in a good direction so whether that's like the disability office like on your campus hopefully if they're like a true disability office where where they're they're there to help support the students and not just throwing out accommodation letters and is expecting the faculty to kind of take the reins i've been a part of like a couple of different like disability summits throughout the summer and then i've also seen um other universities you know realize that they have to take on a more active role when it comes to assembling the right people to be a part of these conversations and at least you know even if those summits don't always provide quote unquote like the answers but at least they provide a space of support and visibility for disabled faculty disabled staff disabled students to feel like ooh like my university like the space where i work they they really want to see me and they really want to respect me and they really want to hear me you know i definitely think that the shift to this and the accessibility factor of things are are just something that that we're all now being a more attuned to because the accessibility for this is we have to, you know, change the way we address things and and making sure that we are more accommodating because just in for anybody, this this whole situation is a lot more tricky than we all thought it would be. And because there's a whole new pedagogy that you need to do for, you know, just online virtual learning in general, and then just understanding, you know, the special needs or the needs for anybody, not even special needs, because it's just everybody actually needs a little bit more time. Anybody needs a little bit more. You know, we need more time. So one of the things also is so you're talking about obviously how educators can help students. How can students help themselves? How can they advocate for themselves in this situation? So self-advocacy is key. And, and I always like encourage my students, like even while we're lecturing or, or even while like I'm in the middle of like doing a presentation, like, you know, stop me. Like my autistic students, they are known to like interrupt me like at the drop of a hat. And I'm just, and I, and I just let them talk and I'm like, okay, or, or I always tell them, I'm like, you know, look, I'm available during office hours. I, like I'm on a text basis with some of my, my, my disabled students just because like I just know that I have to be there. But, but I'm also very true in, in letting them know, like, look, like, you know, I have to put my son to bed, but, but, I, but these are my office hours. I'm available. So I'm always there to be an open ear and I, and I make sure that they know that. And I tell my students, and I'm like, if you disappear, that's like a big, a big concern. It's like, I would rather see you. I would rather you flood my emails because then at least I know like you want to continue being successful. Like, and, and to me, like, that's like a form of self-advocacy. It's like, Hey professor, like I need help or I don't have this, or are you sure this is what, you know, what, what you're asking for the, the project. So I encourage students like, don't, don't be afraid to just be like completely honest and, and to, to practice self-advocacy and then to feel comfortable disclosing like what your disability is, because not all students 
um, have like accommodation letters. And so like, I'm encouraging them to like get those accommodation letters and to, and to let faculty know like, well, this is like what my specific situation is. Yeah, no, and I, and I think it's a testament maybe to the educators too, where a student is able to be comfortable enough to share themselves with that and to know that they, you know, like you mentioned, have a safe space or also feel that they can come and talk to these things. Because I think that's one of the things as maybe, you know, students don't understand that they can, or students don't actually have that feeling of of allowing themselves to be that authentic because maybe just the professor is not presenting them themselves that way. And, you know, so... I, I also take it as when a you know a student comes to me in any you know circumstance to kind of say I need to talk to you about you know a personal situation you know to me I feel honored in the ability to be like you know you you trust me enough you know and I think that's really good as educators for us to to build that trust and to know that we are going to be honest with our students it could be tough it could be this but it's tough love and you know into into allow us to understand and be in their worlds I think is 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 really helpful because like you said, when you're honest with them and saying, well, I have to put my son to bed and I have to do this, they understand that you're sharing yourselves with them and they maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with that. So, you know, that's one of the things that I think I agree with kind of being not sheltering and, and shutting yourselves off from, from any student actually, you know, and allowing yourself to kind of be honest with who you are. So as we start to get, get closer to the, to the end, you know, and you seem to, with your creativity, express yourself with photo collages and bold iconography and type, what do you think gets you into that creative mood? I've really had to just let go a lot of just how I feel that define should should look or, you know, oh, well, this is trendy, so I need to, to do and I need to design this way or I need to design in that way. Like I've started really letting go of the trends and, and what I feel like is the quote unquote right way and, and letting go a lot of, of what I feel like will be embraced and accepted. And then minute that I choose to go with my gut, and I've said this many times, like to myself, it's just like the minute that I stopped trying and the minute that I just kind of went with ma- making sure that the language and that the imagery that I am using is like really accessible and that the imagery and the language that I'm using, that it just resonates and that it's empowering and that it's not too complicated and that it's not too like, well, what is she trying to say? And like that is what is important. If you want to say like disability solidarity, then just say it. If you want to say Black Disabled Lives Matter, then just say it. There, like you shouldn't have to sugarcoat or or try to devise like this super technical way of being able to like make justice like accessible. Like just say exactly what needs to be said, and say it in a way that is like uplifting and that it centers and that it and that it celebrates. A community that often feels like they're just not celebrated. Period. What are what are some aspects or one aspect of the creative process that you still struggle with? So I I still struggle with because I, because I do have ADHD. Like I still struggle with you know work life balance and being able to kind of shut down because like I feel like oh like it's all on me and I have to get this done and I have to meet this deadline. And then other times like I have like a lot of burnout and a lot of meltdown. And you'll hear this a lot within you know, the disability community, like after every huge presentation, you know, like we agonize over it. And then like, you won't see us for like two or three days because we're like, nope, like I'm done. I'm out. And I'll see like my friends tweet about it. It'll be like some huge, you know, like, you know, disability summit where they put so much time into making sure that their presentation was just right or making sure that all their 
their their research and 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 um and things that they were gonna uplift. It's a lot. Like it takes a lot. Not that it's not necessary, but just being able to kind of come and especially if it went really well, it's like okay, well then we have like coming down from that high and being able to keep up with the demand. Like that's like the really difficult thing because it's like. The minute that you're like, man, I'm going to come all out with it and I'm going to be really honest, that's when people are just like, well, I need you to do this and I need I need this for me and I need that for me. So it's just like being able to just educate people a little bit more about how to like be more patient, but then also realizing that it is okay to take a break. You don't have to say yes to everything, but then also being honest and being and telling some people, look, I don't really have the bandwidth right now, but I can connect you with someone else or if you don't mind waiting that's why like, I appreciate you because you were just like, look, like I'm an educator too. And if we need to schedule this for like the next, like four weeks, like we'll do it. And I'm like, yep. I'm like, I'm, I'm a hold, I'm a hold it to, I'm a hold you to it because I'm like, look, like if the conversation is going to happen, if, and, and, and if it's really meant to be manifested, then it'll, it'll continue to happen. So just because like you first asked me like six weeks ago doesn't necessarily mean that everything that we're talking about today isn't still relevant as it was six weeks ago. Oh, definitely. You know, like when we first, so, so I have to be able to remember that and I have to be able to like realize that, you know, this conversation can still happen and we can still uplift a community versus like, Oh, like, well, I'm, I'm completely like inadequate and you know, he's not going to be my friend if I just kind of don't do this interview and, you know, or, or, or if I, or if I'm not in this podcast with him, like, so there's so much pressure sometimes that I put on myself to kind of make things happen, you know, and, and a lot of that imposter syndrome where, where I'm feeling like, you know, oh, like this person is doing it better. Like, why is he even wanting to talk to me? You know, kind of like, so I still struggle. <laughs> I still struggle with that a lot. That's a, that's a creative struggle, right? That's what we all like, you know, who, who am I to be in this conversation? Why are they talking to me? Am I going to say the right thing? You know, I think we all, we all struggle with those things. And, and, and I believe, you know, even the amplification of, or the idea that you're talking about, you know, as we get psyched up for a big presentation and then we need to have that self-care moment after, right? That's just, that's just taking care of yourself. That's just being, you know, like, you know what, you've, you've spent a lot of time and effort and now you need time to decompress and and not focus on those things. And I think that's a great way of kind of saying, you know what? Yeah, shut off all those those things and those in those ways. What type of advice would you give a younger gen entering the creative industry? Yeah, so great question. So a lot of the advice that that I give is to I'm always going to start off with like just be true to yourself. And if you know that certain lanes aren't your lane, like continue to kind of stay in your lane. And if you feel like, if you feel like you're really empowered by like a specific topic or theme or agenda, like stick with it and learn it and educate yourself, whether that's related to like a specific color that pops up in your designs all the time, or like a word or like, you know, or, or a character, like just, just milk it and just continue to just embolden yourself with those particular tools and those, and those things, because those are the things that we're going to notice, you know, if it's rainbows, do rainbows, you know, like Amina Mucciolo, a cloud in your rainbow. Like they're one of my favorite artists and, and designers and other autistic, you know, disabled artists. I mean, that is just like this true, beautiful, unabashed 
you know, reckless abandon the way that, you know, she approaches like her, her artwork and her design process. And you can tell that that's not a very rehearsed space. Like that's very much like a true authentic space. And she's going to do it no matter what people say or no matter how people try to coach her or try to package her work. And, and I've had folks try to do that to me. And it's like, well, what are you like? Well, what are you really hoping to achieve? Or, or, or what are you calling all of this? Or what do you do? You know, it's like people are always struggling so hard to like define like your mission and your purpose. And I'm like, you need to define it first before somebody else tries to define it for you. Now, it's different if you're like, hey, I need support. I need help. Can you help me understand like what this vision is and help me kind of like, you know, navigate through it. And that's when you like seek a mentor or like an advisor and you have those, those conversations with other people like within your field. But if you also feel like this is just a space where you need to exist in, in this way, then trust that, honor that. And don't necessarily try to break yourself from that honesty and just continue learning. I mean, like, and, and then I always tell them that like learning, as we all know, it's like a forever thing. And I always tell them, my students on the first day of classes, I'm like, I don't know everything and I don't claim to know everything because I want to be able to continue learning. I'm a lifelong learner and student. And, and I tell my students, I'm like, and I love learning from you. Like, I love learning from, from cool things that, that you may have or cool artists that you want to be able to highlight or that you want to uplift. So honesty, keep learning, keep exposing yourself to a lot. Like the learning never stops. Agreed. Learning never stops. So what are you working on now? What's the future hold for, for Jen White Johnson? I just hope that COVID goes away. <laughs> yes, please. Right. I'm, I'm working just on just making more fun little zines. I've been asked to do like some fun zine workshops for, for some really cool spaces, spaces that I never thought that I would see myself in. And so just continuing to just be like, like, like this ambassador, you know, um, and continue to just be open and available and to just be like a really good representative for, for my community and to continue just redefining what, what that can look like. And realizing that that I just need to be open and just hold more space for like my my design and my artwork and that um and that it needs to be out there. So whether it's like a huge big project or whether it's just like a small little zine, like something that I have coming up as like a cool little like branding marketing workshop with the Baltimore Creatives Network and you know, I'm going to be meeting a whole bunch of entrepreneurs for the first time, you know, through Zoom and going to be talking a little bit about, well, now that, that they're about to embark in this new, you know, chapter in their lives, how do they really want to define their brand and how are they, but not necessarily focusing on the commercialism of that brand, but how are you building a sense of community? How are you building a sense of engagement, you know, and how are you building, you know, a sense of liberation? Because that is the whole point of, of what this experience and this this whole entrepreneurship journey is supposed to mean right like how are you freeing other people and so making sure that people remember that collective you know liberation cannot exist in a silo and it can't be created in a silo if you can't respect the way other people work and if you can't respect and want to learn from the community around you you need to stop mm -hmm. you just need to stop because you can't really create it alone and on your own so true I think community and and collectiveness and and working together on on projects is is how we we move this conversation forward. So where can people continue to find out more about you? 
So you can find me on my website at jenwhitejohnson.com. And then there I have like a whole bunch of really cool visuals of projects that I've worked on. And then there's a link on the website that will actually lead you to my little Weebly shop. E-commerce was never a thing. I never really thought that I would be selling stickers and shirts and poster prints. Like that just wasn't really my thing, but it is now because, you know, it's just a way for me to continue sharing like my gifts. So my favorite thing now is being able to see people rocking like the Black Disabled Lives Matter shirt from like, whether it's like in Scotland, London, Cali, like I'm not playing, like this is a legit movement and it's like really empowering to see people feeling like they can just, that, that we can just all be together if it's something as simple as like a t-shirt or if it's like putting like a, you know, an autistic joy or a Black Autistic Lives Matter sticker like on your skateboard, like me, that's just like, man, like that's just all I've ever wanted was just to be able to kind of share space with people in a variety of different ways. So those are the the, the things that, that you can find on my shop, you know, just disability justice, disability acceptance and autistic joy, little fun things that, that you can just choose to kind of support me with. And, and yeah, and then I'm on Instagram at, at JT Knox Rocks, that's JT and then K-N-O-X-R-O-X-S. Knox rocks. So I love, you know, getting DMs from people and I love being able to meet other autistic people, other disabled folks. I just love, I love it. I love being able to kind of, to be like in community with like. I love it. I, I, I want to thank you, Jen. And I'm, and I'm so amazed with our conversation and you enlightening me um, on just kind of where we need to be, how, how this conversation needs to continue to be amplified and, and, and why the specific the specific necessity of really showcasing black and brown disabled people in in a state of having joy, happiness, and maybe shifting the conversation from maybe all the negativity that tends to be surrounding that is to make sure that we we look upon them in a different light and look upon them also in the same light as we look upon everything else. And um, some of the things that that obviously we talk about is, is especially when we, we talked about, you know, it's not either or it's a yes. And, and, or how can we adjust or how can we do this also? And I think that's one of the things, even from the first thing we mentioned when I was asking you to, to discuss this or that, and your conversation always was like, well, how come it can't be both? Right. So what, 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 you know, why can't we be included? Why can't this conversation be part of a normal conversation, quote unquote, normal you know, whatever that happens to be. And I think that's what the biggest takeaway from this conversation is, is that it's not about one thing. It's about including all things. And I want to thank you for just your honesty, your openness and getting into your process and your, and actually your perspective and why you continue to do this and how being a mother has helped shift and really create maybe your visual voice now. So I, I really thank you. And I, I really appreciate the time you had for us. Yes, the master. <laughs> Put it. Um, thank you very much. And this has been Works in Process. Wow. That was such a good episode with Jen. And I'd like to thank her one last time. It was so inspiring to listen to how she's redefining ableist culture, making sure she advocates for her son, advocates for the community, and advocates for her students. If you want to see her work or who she mentioned in the episode, check out the show notes at wip.show. 
The Works in Process podcast is created by me, George Garastegui Jr., and this episode has been edited by Hearsay Productions. Thanks so much for taking a journey with me, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be social, and let's connect on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you like the show, don't be shy. Feel free to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, remember, it's not always about what you create, but how you create it.